you stopped using your HRT today, by tomorrow, it's going to be out of your body. So it's not like I'm giving you um, an injection or a life-changing operation where you, you know, you can't reverse it. So that is one thing that I think is really important for people to remember. And the second thing is we never start people on high doses, despite what the man on Sunday tried to instigate. So we start people on a dose that's right for them, which is well within license range. And then we review and modify according to their individual needs. Well, I suspect you already know who that voice belongs to. It's a good friend of mine and friend of the show, Dr. Louise Newson. October is menopause month, so she's here to talk to us about the practicalities of taking HRT. I'm Liz Earle, and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show. On this podcast, I chat to people who might just be able to help us all have a better second half. Yes, you know I'm on a real mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Okay, HRT. For me, it's not just an optional extra. It's a fundamentally important part of my health and well-being, my physical and mental health, my emotional stability, my strength, my cognition, my everything. And this should come as no surprise. As a midlife woman, I am depleted in the essential hormones that fuel every single cell in my body. Without HRT, I would crumple and I am not alone. All women, every single one of us, lose oestrogen and other hormones as we age. And the only, I repeat, the only way to regain them is by replacing them with safe, body-identical ones, simply to bring us back into balance. Nothing more, nothing less. But recently, there seems to have been a shift in the media towards a focus on potentially unsafe prescribing, especially when it comes to the amount of hormones that women should be prescribed. So... What is the truth? Now, as you know, here on this podcast, our aim is to focus on clear, evidence-based, factual and trusted information. Always. So, is there a blanket rule on how much oestrogen should be prescribed? Are higher doses safe? And what does it mean for a medication to be licensed anyway? Well, Louise Newson is a GP and the UK's leading menopause specialist, founder of the Menopause Charity, the Balance App, and is a member of the Government Menopause Task Force. I want to be unapologetically detailed about HRT today, and I know Louise is the woman we need to hear from to get the information we need. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Louise, welcome back. It's always the biggest, biggest pleasure to talk to you. And I know we might cover some ground that we've been over before, but I'd really like all this information to be easily accessible in one place once and for all. So I guess we should start with the obvious. What is HRT? Oh, thanks, Liz. And thanks for inviting me. HRT is only three letters, but it's three letters that has caused so much confusion, so much anxiety, so much worry for far too long. And actually, I don't think it should be even called HRT because it stands for Hormone Replacement Therapy. It should really be, I think, HST, Hormone Support Treatment. It's not a therapy. It is just replacing or topping up the missing hormones. And it's very, you know, hormones are natural. They naturally occur in our body. They're biologically active hormones. And a hormone is something that just is a messenger. It transmits a message from one cell to another, usually via the bloodstream. We have lots of hormones in our body. And so HRT has always been defined as of estrogen and progesterone. And it, it's sort of not really, it doesn't really describe it very well. But of course, we're all different. So there are different doses, there are different types, there are different needs for having HRT as well. Um, but it's caused so much confusion. And as we've spoken about many times before, everyone, when they hear those three letters, just think of breast cancer. We know there are more benefits and risks for the majority of women of taking HRT. There's no lower age limit for starting HRT and there's no upper age limit for stopping HRT. And the guidelines, the evidence are very clear that we individualise treatment like we do for anything else in medicine, actually. We involve our patients, we discuss what's needed at that time and we listen to what patients want and then we make a treatment plan based on the the needs, the requirements, their health risks, the health benefits and move forward and monitor patients closely. How does HRT work then to ease menopause symptoms? So, well, then when we think about the menopause, obviously, it's not just stopping of periods or reduction of fertility, which is what we've been told for many years as well. As you know, our hormones come from our ovaries, but they also come from other areas in our body. And estrogen is also produced from our brains, which a lot of people don't realise. So when our ovaries aren't working, as in we've become menopausal, our ovaries reduce the amount of hormones we produce. So we have lower levels of estrogen. Some women have very low, if if any at all. Others do have a small amount of estrogen, progesterone and testosterone in their bodies. So what we do is we give the hormones to replace what's missing. If we start HRT in the perimenopause, which is the time when hormones start to fluctuate and decline, then that's the time when we often start a lower dose and then we change the dose as the woman's own hormones decline. So we're just trying to match and usually have a physiological response because As we've spoken about before, it's not just about symptoms, it's about future health. And if there aren't adequate doses, then there can still be this increased risk of diseases, especially heart disease and osteoporosis. And so my concern as a physician, if you suboptimally treat someone, then they might not have the best disease prevention that they would do otherwise. It's a bit like if someone's got raised blood pressure... I won't just get it slightly low, I'll get it in the normal range. And that might mean increasing the dose, it might mean adding two or three drugs together. And that's what we do in medicine, because we want to reduce risk of heart disease in people that have raised blood pressure. 
And that's how I'm sort of with my physician and pathology hat on thinking about the menopause and the hormones and the role of hormones in our body. You know, we don't do a tiny bit of exercise. We do as much as we can to keep us healthy. And it's the same with hormones, really. So we obviously know that replacing our hormones as we miss them is good in terms of easing symptoms. And we've covered this a lot in the past. You know, there's so many, many symptoms, not just hot flushes, but everything, you know, brain fog and dry eyes and UTIs and achy joints, you know, all of that. But it's interesting to hear you talk about disease prevention. Can you talk us through the protective role of oestrogen? You mentioned heart disease. I know that we've talked about things like osteoporosis before you know diabetes these are huge killers of women are you actually saying that replacing estrogen is health protective for these things yeah and and again let's just strip it back to basic um physiology if if you like estrogen helps as you said at the beginning every single cell in our body but it is very anti-inflammatory and it works on our immune cells. So our immune cells fight infection. Of course, we need them for that, but they also reduce inflammation in the body. So when we have areas of, um, or when we have low levels of estrogen in our body, then our immune cells don't work as well. They're not as effective. When we have estrogen priming these cells, so we've got estrogen receptors on these immune cells, then we can increase the number, we can change the way they work, they can also be genetically reprogrammed as well. And so they work a lot more efficiently, so therefore we can fight diseases a lot better. And we know that people are less likely to have infections when they're taking HRT or they have their own natural hormones on board. But it goes further than that because it reduces inflammatory conditions in the body. And when we think of inflammatory conditions, they're all the ones that you've said. So they're the chronic diseases that a lot of people have when they're older, but it's cardiovascular disease. So it's also osteoporosis, it's type 2 diabetes, it's dementia, it's even things like Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease. They can all be related to inflammation, even um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, really interesting, actually. And so we know from many studies, the longer a woman is without her hormones, the greater the risk of these diseases is. And it's important when we think worldwide, most people die from heart disease and dementia. When we look at the studies of replacing hormones, one of the things to note is good quality studies haven't been done in women, full stop, as we know. But good quality studies of HRT in women still have not really been done, but we have got good evidence that supports the notion that taking HRT reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis. We have got some evidence for type 2 diabetes, and we've got some evidence came out recently actually for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is interesting. With dementia, it always seems there's a lot of controversy, but the body identical hormones we know do probably reduce the risk of dementia. If you look how they work in the brain, they reduce inflammation, they help mitochondrial function and mitochondria are the powerhouse of our cells. And they also reduce something called tau protein and amyloid deposition and tau protein and amyloid increase they have they, they increase in the brain in people with dementia so if we've got something that reduces something associated with dementia then if you put two and two together and make four rather than 400 common sense will tell you that it will have an effect um so but the problem is as well is that 
a lot of guidelines, including some from America, have said there's not enough evidence. And when you look at the reason for that is that if they said there was enough evidence for disease prevention with HRT, they'd have to cover it by insurance, which no one wants to insure someone that is affects no. 51% of the population, yes. and That is staggering. I know, I read the, it the recently. Pu- the public health policy yes. could be influenced yeah. by insurance policies Absolutely. In but the other mm-hmm. thing is, is that, and I haven't got proof for this second part, but I'm sure you'd agree, is that we've got big pharma around us, especially in America, but even in the UK. So if women take HRT, they're less likely to take expensive drugs for osteoporosis. They're less likely to take statins for their cholesterol. They're less likely to take blood pressure lowering drugs. They're less likely to take antidepressants, sleeping tablets, Mm -hmm. painkillers, drugs for urinary incontinence, antibiotics. Um, yeah, we're not going to be buying tenner pads, no, you know, because so, we have our continents back. Oh, my gosh. I mean, when you look at it from that point yeah. of view, something that's a very cheap, simple and effective hormone, you know, costing pence. Yes. Compared to what other drugs and products women might be prescribed or have to buy. It's a massive, massive industry. I mean, what a massive loss of revenue if, if women suddenly become well, well of course. By, by having their hormones back. Of course. And so why would you want women to feel well? You know, we've known for the history of time, it's convenient for women to be invisible and um, just not a, not a nuisance for society. A lot of people are scared of powerful women, aren't they? So there's all sorts well, of you issues should know that. going on. <laughs> <laughs> so. can, can we talk a little bit about the immune system because I was really interested actually during COVID there were some very interesting studies showing that women with higher levels of estrogen were better protected and had much better outcomes whether they were either younger and had natural estrogen or whether they were having their body identical HRT your background is very interesting isn't it when you look at pathology and can you talk a little bit about that because you are more than a GP and more than a menopause specialist and I just really like to kind of get this out there your level of knowledge and information that you have to support what you're saying yeah you're very kind yeah when I was doing a medical degree many years ago I had an option to take a year out so I did um, a three-year BSc course bachelor of science course in um, in a year so it's hard work but it was in pathology so I've got a first class honours degree in pathology and it was then actually that really it was quite amazing to have time to think and reflect and read papers and think about the amazing way our bodies work and down to a cellular level of course but looking at our immune cells because before I just thought oh they're just something that gobble up infections but actually if they're not primed properly they turn against us and they can become pro-inflammatory so they can increase inflammation and so we know that and of course your work knowing looking at if people smoke if they don't eat healthily if they don't exercise you've got more inflammation we've known that for many years but everyone ignores hormones and how powerful they are Um, and so it just made me think differently really having that degree that sort of science background um and obviously yeah with covid at the time i was really trying to shout from the rooftops and everyone just thought i was a bit mad which maybe i am but there is evidence now that women who take hrt are less likely to die from covid less likely to have a severe covid infection but we see it a lot we know that there's studies showing that women with hepatitis when they take hrv it's less severe um other other diseases even ebola virus you know it can make a difference and a lot of women just say to me do you know what i don't have the coughs and colds and sneezes and that i used to have 
Yeah, um, it's true. I mean, I actually thinking about it, that that's the same for me and protecting the immune system. And I'm just so fascinated by the fact that we had these estrogen receptors all over the body. And I remember talking to a professor of dermatology, I think possibly at one of the conferences that you were attending, who was saying that topical estrogen, so the estrogen that you might get in a gel, for example, is something that he recommends on surgical scars because they heal mm. faster. Well, yeah, and yeah. Yeah, where, where, where would you hear that from a doctor? I've never heard a surgeon say, by the way, go home and rub on your oestrogen gel. No, and the problem is a lot of people who have surgery are told to stop taking your HRT because they're worried about the clot risk, which, just to reassure your listeners, obviously, as you know, if women have oestrogen through the skin as a patch gel or spray and the natural progesterone and testosterone, there's no clot risk. And we know that oestrogen improves wound healing. So it will help the blood flow to the damaged area. It will help build collagen. And it will also help with the blood. There's these immune cells which will help to build and repair tissues and reduce inflammation. We looked at a study recently of giving women who were on HRT are far less likely to have ulceration of their legs, which doesn't sound very glamorous, but it's a massive cost to the NHS of people having numerous dressings, numerous visits by district nurses for their uh, venous ulcers and a lot of infections related to them. And it really really affects mobility in women. And so even just looking at that small area, you could save the NHS millions of pounds by women taking HRT. It's so fascinating. And I'm interested and pleased that you brought up talking about delivery methods, transdermal patches, sprays, gels. There are obviously different ways of taking HRT, just as there are different doses and and slightly different types. What's the evidence relating to different rates of absorption of transdermal HRT? Is, Is the gel different from the patch, for example? Just to pick it back even more than that, Liz, actually, we're all different. So our skin is different. And, you know, there's some very basic pharmacology that I learned as a first year medical student really that the skin is not a good way to absorb drugs because the skin is a barrier it's not meant to have drugs to absorb through it and so when you look at how we absorb drugs into our system we have to look at how it's absorbed how it's distributed through the body how it's metabolized and how it's eliminated and all of these things can make a big difference now most drugs are not given transdermally through the skin because it doesn't work very well there's obviously nicotine patches we all know of there's something called fentanyl which is a painkiller And we know that the other way of giving fentanyl is with an injection, but it has to be emulsified, so it's a bit of a faff. But actually, oestrogen is very small size, so it it does lend itself to be working well through the skin. But if you look at the patch, it's literally all it is is the oestrogen with a bit of a membrane with glue on it. It's not very um, exotic or anything. But we also need to think about our skin type. My skin and your skin are very different. So when we look at how we absorb through the skin, we need to think about the, the, the thickness of the skin, how how the blood vessels are. So if you're more warm and your blood vessels are on the surface, you're going to absorb more than if you're really, really cold. If your skin's very dry, which it often is for menopausal ladies, it doesn't stick on so well. There's less blood supply there. So that can change. And we also know that the the skin doesn't always absorb the same thing in every area of the body. So if I stick my patch onto my bottom or my thigh or my lower back, 
the absorption will be different. And some studies have shown there's a 11-fold variation in patch absorption wow. and a seven-fold variation in women who use the gel. So it's really not very reliable at all, but it's the best we've got. It's good for us using it through the skin because it gets absorbed straight into the bloodstream, doesn't get metabolized, doesn't get broken down by the liver. So it is good, but we know that there is this variation. So of course, it can't be a one-size-fits-all. Um, we do have, obviously, if you look at the way drugs are prescribed, there's always a maximum licensed amount. And usually that's just because the drug companies, they have to have a license for an indication. So actually, if you look at most types of HRT, it's only indicated for the menopause. So a year past your last period, whereas a lot of us start it in the perimenopause. So most of us are using it in an off-label way. But that aside, they, they want to know what the a dose requirement is. So they do studies and often they it can be a bit of a guesswork. And we've been looking at a lot of these studies that have been done to look at um, how they worked out what the maximum dose was. And a lot of the studies have involved women of a very small number. And you'll be shocked to hear that it's women. Uh, they did a, some studies of women, uh, 32 women, 34 women, uh, women. 32 yes. women so, and the entire yes. prescription guidelines are based on those results. Yeah. And, and they were using patches for four days for women who are menopausal. So a lot of women, it could take more than four days before you come to a steady state and work out your absorption. And even when the studies that have been done there's a real variation and obviously when you say normal it's like a normal blood pressure for example there will still be five percent we do a standard deviation for everything when we say normal so so five percent will be outside that range so that means two and a half percent will need a lower amount two and a half percent higher amount just looking at a normal distribution curve whereas the studies have shown there was a big variation to the extent that probably about 16% of women will need a higher dose to get the same absorption because through the skin is so unreliable. So we've known this for quite a long time. These studies are quite old. Um, but also when I talk to pharmacologists who specialize in transdermal absorption, they're saying, Louise, I don't quite know why you're finding this so so confusing because it's obvious and of course I think it's obvious but there's a lot of people out there who keep talking about the maximum dose and how dangerous it is to have more but I don't see how because we're all different and some women say their patches don't stick on well so two patches not sticking on very well it's the same absorption as one patch and someone else that does stick on well. Yes. So just to backtrack a little bit, I, I, the couple of points I'd like to just ask you very simply. You talk about rates of absorption varying on the body. If you, we are using transdermal, a patch or gel, where is the best place to put it? Is it always better through the thigh or better through the arm? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, they're licensed again. This is because this is where they did the studies on below the waist. And there's no reason they have to be done that way because this, we're just using the skin as a vehicle to get it through into the bloodstream, of course. Um, it really depends on the women. Some women find their lower back is good. Some people find that their thighs or their... Um, uh, their bottom is better. What's really important is to try and make the skin as clean and as dry as possible. So some people find even just using like a medi wipe or something, letting that dry, the skin dry, and then putting it on can be really good. 
some people find, and I know after four days of wearing my patches, when I take them off, my skin can be quite red and inflamed. And that's only a temporary thing. And usually my patches stick on well, so I don't want to change it. But if your skin's red and inflamed, you're probably not absorbing the same amount either. And then some people we find we change from one manufacturer type of patch to another. We use exactly the same dose and people go, wow, I feel so much better. I feel so different. <laughs> really? So, yeah. And that, you know, it just shows all you go from the patch to the gel or the gel to the patch. Everyone is, is different. And so that's why it's really important to work with a healthcare professional who understands the menopause, understands how different we are and reviews you regularly because the number of times I see women in my clinic and actually about a third of women who come to my clinic are already taking HRT and they say, oh, I've been told it can't be due to my hormones because I'm already on HRT. So my symptoms of memory problems, fatigue, anxiety, joint pains can't be my hormones. And I always say, well, let's just try and replace your hormones properly and see what's what's left with your symptoms. And then I find that the patches are flapping in the wind after two days or the gel is floating off and I do a blood test and their estrogen level is very low. So it's important to be reviewed and make sure you get the best out of your hormones, really. Is there anything that women can do to increase the likelihood then of absorbing transdermal HRT? You talked about warm skin, for example, being a better absorbent. Yeah, I, th I think it's really difficult. I think making sure that whatever they use sticks well, if it's a patch, is important. I read a lot of people on social media who are putting sticking plasters over their patches. If that happens, you've really got to try and get somebody um, to prescribe something different for you. Sometimes people say that they're prancing around their bedroom for hours on end because the gel is just sliding off their skin. Well, that's not going to be absorbed either. Um, so sometimes people find changing the site of absorb it's better, you know, they absorb it better on their arms or their legs or vice versa um so but but things like changing temperature skin is is quite difficult um and some people find you know when they're on holiday and they're warm they feel different to when they're at home and it's colder so you know it, it's just making sure you know that there are options and it's really isn't a one-size-fits-all brilliant stuff well stay right there i do want to come back in just a moment and talk about something really important and that is dosage Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Okay, let's talk dosage. You've talked a little bit in the first half about the way that we absorb estrogen in particular, and that's kind of, I guess, what we're focusing on here, and about how doses vary. How far does that dose vary, and how much does it need to be based on each individual and and what they might need? What what are the kind of ranges here that we're talking about? It really ranges, Liz. And I think what's really important is that as a physician, the patient is more important than any numbers. And I've always been taught that in medicine, you know, listen to the patient. It's not about just doing a blood test or a scan or what have you. And obviously we do the menopause symptom questionnaire that you can download from Balance or get on the website or various websites you can get it from. But not every symptom on there is going to be due to someone's hormones, of course, but it's in conjunction with everything else. Common sense is really important, listening to the patient, of course, and sometimes we do blood tests as well. We know roughly for women, the sort of normal physiological range is between 250 and 1,000 picomoles per litre. But again, that does vary, and that's based on poor quality evidence. We don't, I've got no idea what, what my peak estrogen level was when I was having periods 30 years ago. You probably, no, nobody wait, tested. No, no one tested. No, they, they, no idea. But they also, even if they yeah. did test, it would change a lot of the time as well. It changed within minutes sometimes. And that's why when we're menopausal or perimenopausal, we have minutes sometimes where we have this uncontrollable rage and we're feeling awful. And other times when we feel fine because our hormones fluctuate all the time so it's very difficult to know but we know that's a rough rough range but I've seen some ladies who have felt really awful actually and their level is 260 270 and then I've increased their dose of estrogen the level comes back as 600 so still not high and they'll go wow I feel amazing this is absolutely incredible but I've also seen some women who you do a blood test for and their level comes back as 4,000. And you think, well, that's quite high. And then you say, well, let's just reduce the dose. And then they come back and say, do you know what? I felt the worst that I felt ever. You do their blood test again and it comes back as 40 or 80 or really low. And then you realize that maybe they've just had a hormonal surge of their own because when we measure estrogen, I don't know whether it's estrogen from their HRT or estrogen from their body. And we produce it in other areas of our body as well. And it cross reacts. It's not a really, really sensitive blood test. And we've also seen some women who we've not changed the dose of. They've had high levels, repeated their blood test to make sure, and then it's come back low. So there's a huge variation. And we know that if you rub the gel on your arm, 
the skin is a reservoir for that gel. So it sort of slowly gets released into the bloodstream. So you can have, a study has shown that you can have a high estradiol level if the blood is taken from that arm that's had the gel rubbed on. So you just have to be really careful and not take a blood test in isolation. There's a lot of concern out there about doses and levels and we're just writing up all our audit data now we're just going through all the statistical analysis so we can write it up for publication but there isn't a good correlation between dose and level we've got some ladies with higher levels who are on lower doses than women on higher doses and that just shows that the absorption really varies and we can't say that women more likely have bleeding when they're on higher doses we see a lot of women who have bleeding on lower doses so it's all about what's right for that person at that time and what's also interesting is we've had a few patients who We've started on one dose and they've been menopausal. Like I said before, their skin's quite dry, a bit inflamed, it's thinner. And then their skin gets better. Their vasculature improves. I've already said estrogen helps blood flow to the skin. And then they need to lower dose because they're just absorbing it more efficiently. And Or they might start in the perimenopause when they're still producing their own hormones, become menopausal, and then they'll need a higher dose to change you know to 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 replace those missing hormones so that's why it's so important to be reviewed and not just scared into thinking i'm on the wrong dose or i'm on too high a dose or anything like that so are higher doses of estrogen safe and i ask this because the british menopause society released a statement at the end of 2022 saying that high doses increase the risk of abnormal bleeding endometrial hyperplasia and endometrial cancer is there any evidence to support this no in one word we haven't really? done so the studies haven't been done And so you can hypothesize with anything, but if you haven't got the study, you haven't got proof. Now, the other problem is we will never have good quality randomized control studies because I would never enter a a study where I could be given a placebo rather than my HRT because I wouldn't be able to work for the duration of that study. But you don't have to do randomized control studies. If I was testing out a new parachute, I wouldn't be doing a randomized control study in it. So, no. <laughs> I mean, we've got probably the largest data set in the world with our patients, which we're analyzing in an anonymous way, which is very re- revealing and very reassuring. We're also working with pharmacologists, we're working with statisticians, we're working collaboratively, so it's not going to be biased in any of our results at all. But it's not about the dose. I think people get a really, well, they are getting very worked up about the dose and we have to think about the absorption and interesting um, yes i i i hear from a lot of women now who are just told they can't have a higher than the licensed dose and actually there isn't anything to say we can't prescribe off label so when we prescribe something that isn't for that license indication whether it's the dose or the indication it's just an off label use and there is some really clear guidance how we can do that and we can do that it's absolutely fine um, as long as we're not doing any harm that we're aware of um and you know we do it a lot a lot of medication we prescribe for children is off label so it's licensed preparations but they haven't been licensed for children or for example i mean you know with lily a lot of medication that we give prophylaxis for migraines mm-hmm. actually is not licensed for that use no. you know and actually no. also there's a lot of medication <laughs> 
that is given for menopausal women as an alternative to HRT. So gabapentin, progabaline, antidepressants, they are all used in an off-license use. Yet no one seems to question that. I don't really understand. And of course, so many women are prescribed antidepressants when there's no evidence to support that they help menopausal low mood. Absolutely. It's uh, it's really shocking, actually. I I have to say the British Menopause Society also released a statement that say that women need to be made aware that, you know, symptoms such as low mood and anxiety can have other causes and require treatment other than HRT. You know, what are your thoughts on that? I suppose the question is to what extent is HRT a panacea? Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of people there that think HRT is going to just treat everything. And it's just, you know, a magic silver bullet. And of course, it's not. But of course, for lots of women, it makes a huge difference. And it enables us to think about what else we're doing to improve our mental and physical health. Um, You know, I I did my yoga practice this morning and I was thinking there's no way I could get up at six o'clock and do half an hour of yoga before I start my day, nor if I wasn't taking HRT. I think about that every time (laughs) I lift my weight. Precisely. (laughs) But if I, um, you know, but if I wasn't taking HRT, I couldn't exercise. And then I'd be this downward spiral. I think with mental health issues, it's really, really big. Um, Some of you might have seen a podcast I've just put out about um, a a lady who was sectioned and her husband's a GP and they finally got help in the form of HRT, but only after she'd been sectioned, she'd had heavy duty drugs, she'd had ECT. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody that's sectioned needs to have hormones, but they need to be considered for hormones. And, we need to wake up and realize how important for some women hormones are in our brains. And when I read comments from other gynecologists talking about the mental health component not being real, I feel sorry for these gynecologists because they haven't seen the women that I've seen as a GP or I see most days in my clinic. Because if I had a really bad psychological or psychiatric illness, I would not go and see my gynecologist. I would see a psychiatrist or a mental health worker or a GP. So they don't see what we see. And you learn a lot in medicine and pattern recognition and you learn from patients. And I've seen so many women who have tried all these other drugs, who have been treated, sectioned, all sorts, who are really coming. And I've always, I never give false hope to people and say, well, You've got other menopausal symptoms. You're 55 now. There are benefits from HRT. I don't know whether it's going to help any of your symptoms. And then they come back and one by one, they're taking, they're stopping their antipsychotics, their antidepressants, their sleeping tablets. And then they feel very sad and cheated because they feel like they never had a psychiatric illness. And so for those women, and I don't know whether it's 2% of women with a psychiatric illness, 20% or 80%, it doesn't matter. There are women out there suffering. And the number of messages I've had and comments since even this podcast from yesterday has been huge because it's resonating with people. And we've known for decades the mental health component, but women haven't been listened to. Um, And we know that there's no harm having hormones with these drugs. So a lot of women still need antidepressants or antipsychotics. you can have both then. Of course you can. And I would never say just give someone who's suicidal hormones. That would be ridiculous. Of course they need Mm. often a psychiatric intervention. Even if it's not a drug, they still need expert help. But you wouldn't 
break your arm and be suicidal and just look at the suicide and not fix the the broken arm. You know, there's just, you can yes. have two things going wrong with your body at the same time. Mm-hmm. and Especially at a certain age. Absolutely. So, but even younger women, you know, I, we're doing a lot of work, you know, in people with prisons and people who are homeless. And, you know, there's been some really interesting papers in the 1950s showing that women are more likely to commit a crime before their menopause. Now, these women, we all have lower hormone levels just before our periods. So why aren't we thinking about that? And women who have eating disorders, women who are on drugs, women who, um, you know, abuse drugs, are less likely to have periods. They're more likely to be on, on other drugs that suppress their own hormones. So we need to be just not thinking about it as being a menopause or perimenopausal issue. It's a lot of it is hormonal issues as well that are affecting younger women. It's such a, a huge issue, isn't it? Mm. And when you look at it affecting all areas of society and so much in the world of social justice. Before we kind of touch on perhaps a little bit of that, I just want to cover off this dosage question because it is just dominating the media. I mean, every time I pick up on the mail on Sunday, I just, you know, fly into a fury at the, the sort of inaccuracy and the bias that's there can we just say what is a safe high dose is there a maximum supposing I get my 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 pump of estrogel and I rub all of it all over my body what is going to happen to me how bad is it going to be I think there's two things Alice I don't think you'll do that for a start but I'm not going to do that if you did if you you know I, I I I saw a patient once a few years ago now who told me she was on 16 pumps of estrogen gel a day. And I said, but I started you on two (laughs) pumps like three months ago. What's going on? And she said, well, you told me that I could increase if I wasn't feeling better. And I said, I said you could increase from two to three pumps. So she'd misheard me. (laughs) And now I'm obviously really careful on how I advise and document everything else. But actually... We have to remember that oestrogen doesn't build up in the body. Was she okay, she by was the way? Fine. She actually, fine. she just had some, her breasts were a bit tender, but she, she hadn't done it for long. And she said she just felt a bit wired, like she felt a bit sort of highly strung. And so now she's on four pumps a day and she feels fine. Mm-hmm. But Good. <laughs> um, what we need to remember is that oestrogen doesn't last very long. So if you stopped using your HRT today, by tomorrow, it's going to be out of your body. So it's not like I'm giving you um, an injection or a life-changing operation where you, you know, you can't reverse it. So that is one thing that I think is really important for people to remember. And the second thing is we never start people on high doses, despite what the man on Sunday tried to instigate. So we start people on a dose that's right for them, which is well within license range. And then we review and modify according to their individual needs which is what all the guidelines say menopause care should be individualized so for some women they do need a higher dose because they're not absorbing as well and so what is the maximum dose I don't know but if I'm using higher doses and I'm having an estradiol level done on that patient and it comes back within a normal range 
and they're still having symptoms. Well, I'm a GP, I'm a general practitioner. I am used to looking for other causes of people's symptoms. I'm not just a menopause specialist who only thinks about hormones. And of course, in the background with all our patients, we're looking at nutrition, we're looking at well-being, we're looking at exercise, we're looking at sleep, we're looking at any other factors as well. And sometimes people might have a thyroid disorder, they might be anemic, they might have something else else that's going on causing their symptoms. They might have an arthritis that's causing their joint pain. So we're constantly looking and reviewing. I'm not just going to go, oh, it's all due to your hormones. Let's just increase and increase because we don't do that in any other area of medicine at all. So we don't do it with this either. And when we look at our data, it's about 20% maybe that's sort of top of follow-up patients who use higher than this licensed dose. So it's still the minority of women. But bearing in mind, we are a specialist clinic where about a third of women who come to see us are already taking HRT. And we also have some evidence that 200 microgram dose is better for women who have psychological and psychiatric symptoms, especially schizophrenia, because a higher dose is needed to go through into the blood-brain barrier, to penetrate the blood-brain barrier, to get into our brains to really make a difference. So actually, there could be dangers of not prescribing enough. So we need to just think about not just what are the harms of a high dose, but what are the harms of a low dose as well, or an inadequate dose, um, which I think is important we need to think about. If we're having higher doses of oestrogen, I know if you have a uterus, you need to take progesterone to protect the uterine lining. Does the progesterone then also need to be increased? This is very interesting. And some bodies, they're not regulatory bodies, but some people say yes. But then we've got this whole narrative, which seems to have not blown up in the press about, well, that's an off-label dose that we're prescribing and it's out of license. And when you look at progesterone, actually a lot of people have um, some intolerance, so a higher dose might not suit them. And any risk associated with HRT has been with the synthetic progesterone, so with progesterone. So I would worry of just doing a blanket knee jerk, yes, let's just increase, because we've already said one of the reasons that people have higher doses is because they don't absorb well. So if they're absorbing less on a higher dose than someone who's absorbing really efficiently on a lower dose why would those women need to have a higher dose of progesterone it doesn't make sense so we usually change the dose or type of progesterone according to how symptoms are so if women are um, having bleeding then we obviously look at the bleeding see what investigations they need and if it's related to the HRT then we might change the dose or the type of progesterone and looking at our data which again we're writing up is that we found that women are more likely to bleed on a lower dose than a higher dose and women who have um, thickening of their lining of the womb it doesn't correlate with their dose of HRT which is what you'd expect because it's about the absorption so to do just a knee-jerk thing in medicine and treating everyone the same I think is quite a sort of lazy way of thinking it's not using any professional curiosity um, and not individualizing patients you know some women use a higher dose of progesterone and they like it you know there's a lot of evidence um, that using higher doses of progesterone in women with PMS PMDD can be very beneficial especially using it vaginally it's become 
interesting because they've tried people are trying to shoehorn women into a certain box and medicine is a science but the art is individualizing care and i think this art in medicine when it comes to the menopause seems to have been lost and i feel really sad for the women that are caught up in all of this and are suffering with all these myriad factors in mind then i guess that brings us to the point of shared decision-making, as highlighted in the NICE guidelines. Mm. You know, what is the role of the doctor here and what is the role of the woman in deciding menopause care? Yeah, I think shared decision-making is really, really crucial. And it's the guidelines that came out from NICE are really important. And we've done it for many years, most of us as doctors, and we shouldn't be paternalistic. Gone are the days where I, as a doctor, tell you as a patient what you must or must not do, but it still happens, sadly. Informed consent is really important and sharing uncertainty. But if I don't feel or I don't agree with what you as a patient want, we can still discuss it and you are still allowed to make a decision based on your own needs, requirements, understanding and knowledge even if it's not what I'm recommending. Um, and that can be quite cu- uncomfortable for some doctors. But, you know, we have to think about it, especially when there might be more risks than benefits. So, for example, giving HRT to women who've had breast cancer. Actually, how I'm not that person who's living that life every day, who's waking up three or four times a night crippled with joint pain, who's got recurrent urinary tract infections, who keeps getting admitted with urosepsis, who can't think, who can't function, who can't cook their tea for their children because they're, they're so awful, can't get a job, their partner's left them, and all they want is some of their hormones, and every doctor's told them, no, they can't, they mustn't. Like, how am I supposed to decide what it's like to live their lives all I can do is talk to them about uncertainties and benefits and risks and help them to have the right decision for them at that time Mm, I I love your compassion before we leave uh, and I I don't want to leave but I know that looking at the clock we really ought to I do feel that we should give a nod to the women listening who perhaps feel that HRT isn't for them for whatever reason do you have any practical advice or maybe for women who are on HRT and find that it isn't giving them relief yeah absolutely Liz and it's really good that you talk about that because it's not just about HRT do you take it or not or if you don't take HRT what should you do I feel very strongly that we should all be looking at our future health we should all be making decisions that are right for us it might involve hormones it might not it might involve drinking less alcohol it might not it might involve exercise it might not what we need to do I feel very strongly as people is to be really empowered with knowledge so we can then personalize our experience of our perimenopause and menopause and hormones just part of the conversation it shouldn't be an either or you know you're in this club or you're not or or it's a failure to take HRT or I'm giving in to hormones like someone told me this morning really it's not about that at all it's about Yes, I might try this or I might not try that. I might try a new sport or a new exercise and, you know, or a new skincare regime. That That's fine, you know, and I think that's how we should be seeing it rather than are you in or out of this HRT club because that's how it's becoming and then it becomes very divisive and quite inflammatory and actually that's not very helpful for women. It's not. And I guess that is possibly an end point to just pick up on before we leave. The whole area does seem to have become 
divisive. There seems to be a kind of medico power struggle. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years, particularly with doing this podcast with so many different medics from so many different branches of medicine, is the extraordinary power plays that, that and egos and... I mean, vested interests and agendas that come into what should be a compassionate, empathetic, giving healthcare scenario. And so often the people I come across that that hasn't been their experience. I mean, do you sense that there is a division occurring? I think there there is, but it's not too bad, actually, because I think there's a small minority of healthcare professionals and journalists who are really trying to be very um, controlling and not seeing the bigger picture. And I'm really happy, as I hope your listeners agree, I'm very happy to be challenged. I'm very happy to explain or give a rational um, approach to what I do. It might not be right. It might not be everyone's cup of tea, but I'm not saying everyone has to to, to, to do what I say. To do or, it your way. Yeah, right. absolutely. And so I think the most important thing with all this is about choice. And what saddens me with what's happening is that they're stripping women of choice. They feel it's feel like we're going back in time for women and it's such a strong, important time. You know, you've got daughters, I've got daughters. I want the next generation to not have people pushing them back because we're pushed back enough in all sorts of areas. And I think this is happening and it's not coming from a place of real clinical integrity or knowledge or experience. It's just coming from something else and I can't quite understand what it is. And I don't think I ever will. Some of it's very personal to me, but that should come to me and not involve other women. Um, So I think we should all just reflect and use our common sense and help each other really because that's what's happening with the work that you're doing I'm doing others are doing is that there's this great union of women that are helping each other and I see it a lot on social media and I really don't want that to change because that's going to make the biggest difference going forwards I think. Louise, it's a joy and a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Thank you. I know that you are one of the busiest, most hardworking people I know, and I'm infinitely grateful whenever you find the time to come onto the show and talk to us about so many literally life-changing topics. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Well, I do hope that you found that as interesting and as challenging and possibly as enraging in parts as I did. Let me know what you thought. Well, next week, we will be rounding up our Menopause Month special episodes with athlete and life coach Michelle Griffith Robinson. I'm so hoping that she might be able to share some thoughts and stories that could all help us approach menopause like an Olympian. She is an all round good egg. So I am very much looking forward to that do join me and if you'd like to listen to michelle's episode ad free by the way you can now subscribe to the show on apple podcasts for a very small monthly fee not only will it be ad free but you also get early access to all future episodes too well until next week can i leave you with this thought what further questions do you have about hrt has your mind been put at ease by anything louise has said would you like to pick up on anything would you like to continue the conversation in a certain direction what has it made you think about do let me know the team and i are on instagram that's probably the easiest way to contact us actually the team are at lizelle wellbeing and i am on there too personally at lizelle me so until the next time we chat thanks for being here today go well bye-bye
The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith.